Pastor Moses is away at preaching at Roosevelt Community Church out in Lancaster, California. This morning, I will be planning, Lord willing, to preach there following uh, ne- next Sunday, just to uh, see those who had invested so much of their lives into uh, he and myself. It's always a joy to get to go back and, and see their faces and, and just remember uh, the weight that there is um, to stay the course behind the Word of God. And so, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we come to His Word this morning. Lord, we come now to the most critical hour in the week. Not because of who might be standing behind this pulpit, but because of the book that sits upon it. And inasmuch as I would communicate the meaning of the text that is before us comes life to us that flows like an unending stream to give us hope, joy, conviction that we might live our lives in humble submission to your perfect word. Father, take your truth and thrust it into our hearts. We want the right type of conviction. And Lord, we know we need to hear from you. So we ask that you would bring to us, by way of your double-edged sword, your living and active, authoritative word, you would bring to us the message that would shape our thinking for the rest of this week, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22 says this. Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. We are here once again in 1 Samuel 15. The title of this message has been The Priority of God's Word, and we are in part three. And what we see from that verse, and really from the entirety of the chapter, 
is that the relationship that God wants his people to have with his word is that of obedience. To listen so as to obey. Really, a, a submissive resolve to say, if, if God says to do it, I want to do it. To be doers and not only hearers, as the book of James is so often quoted, and, and rightfully so. God wants humble and, and willful submission to his word. And that is really one of the main reasons for him giving us his word. If you remember from Psalm 119 in verse 4, and I love the way that the NIV translates it. It says, you have given us your precepts that they might be fully obeyed. This really is the heartbeat of 1 Samuel 15. The priority of God's word is our obedience to it. From the king of his people down to the peasant, if you will, God delights in obedience. And so if you are like me, perhaps you're wondering, well, what if I disobey? <laughs> because isn't that the daily struggle? Doesn't it seem like disobedience, at least by way of partial obedience, is our constant spiritual tension? So what would I do if I give partial allegiance to the word of God and God's word comes to me as it so graciously does and it reveals the nature of my actions and my heart and gives the sharp and, and accurate diagnosis that, that I have sinned and have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh? What do I do? Is all lost? I mean, this is a heavy thought for a regular sinner like myself. And we know the solution is not simply to excuse it away by saying, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> you know, I could do better. Neither is it the answer to only highlight God's grace as if his holiness just doesn't exist and say, well, God's grace will cover it, won't it? Isn't that the exact attitude that the Apostle Paul emphatically negates in Romans 6, where he says, should I go on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. So how do we, as those who are in a true saving relationship with God, how do we reconcile God's rightful expectation for us to fully obey his word and our constant failure to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Well, that is one of the main things I hope to address in our time together today, as the story of Saul just continues to bring to the surface much practical theology for our souls. But before we dig into what, what we might consider this theology of biblical confession of sin— just want to catch us up to speed a little bit as to where we're at in our study of First and Second Samuel. If you remember, and now that you have, if you're following us in anchor study, 
You'll recall that 1 Samuel is the transition book for the nation of Israel. It's the transition from a theocracy or the time of the judges where God would raise up judges when the nation of Israel would get would would commit idolatry and spiritual adultery and go after foreign gods. Then they would they would find themselves under the oppression of of those of a nation that God had placed them under as discipline to them. And they would cry out to God and God and his grace would 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 come to them through a judge that he would raise up and they would and he would deliver them from their hands. They get to first Samuel and transition from judges to kingship, from theocracy to a monarchy, though it's still a theocracy where God is the one who reigns. You remember in first Samuel eight, Israel pleads for a human king, and not just not just a king. But one who is like the kings of all the other nations to go out and fight their battles. And really the, the chant that they had there in 1 Samuel 8 was, we want to be like all the other nations. And essentially God gives them exactly what they ask for. Saul, who is handsome and tall, which is not inherently sinful. Certainly the exact opposite of what I've got going on, but worldly as well. This was Saul. Saul becomes the first king of Israel, and he utterly fails. Back in 1 Samuel 13, he disobeys Yahweh, really in the face of some difficult circumstances. I kind of find myself sympathizing a little bit with with. Saul, or maybe empathizing, which is where you don't want to be. I mean, he's there with a small army, like 600 men, and no weapons besides himself, and a Philistine war machine encircling him and his army. It says 30,000 chariots, let alone all the foot soldiers. And Saul's heart shows up through his actions. The the sponge is squeezed and disobedience comes out through what we might call partial obedience. He almost waits for Samuel to come and make the sacrifice. But he doesn't. And when God, through Samuel, confronts him with his sin, just excuses. No confession of sin. Well, God sets out in his kind mercy to reveal Saul's heart yet again. Only this time in 1 Samuel 15, the circumstances are all different. Everything is for Saul. He has a huge army, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Plenty of weapons. And even God's promise from his word that he would defeat the Malachites. And Saul reveals his heart again through partial obedience. He was not willing to listen so as to obey. 
what's seen from 1 Samuel 13 to 1 Samuel 15 is that the circumstances don't matter for Saul. It's a heart issue for him. Which, if we're honest with ourselves, is the case for us as well. If you recall, we've been walking through seven different points from 1 Samuel 15. In verses 1 through 3, we considered what I said is a frightening authority. The frightening authority of God. One that he has total control, not only of the nation of Israel and the king of Israel, but he has total control of the entire world. And he will put out his vengeance in his own wrathful timetable. He, after 300 years of patience, really, for the, for the Amalekites, after they had treated his people poorly, he says, I want you to go in and wipe them out all the way down to the infant. Leave no spoil. Destroy that nation. And it wasn't just for their past sin. For 300 years, that nation continued in their sin, and they were still a sinful people. And that's a frightening type of authority. So often, people want to think of God as just, just this, this loving, kind of mushy, sort of grandfather uh, approach to God, where he's just sitting there with a big smile and a, a huge beard and, and just wants to embrace anybody who will come his way. God is holy, and he hates sin, and he is sovereign, and he will punish if you do not repent. We not only saw as frightening authority, but the trademark atrocity, which was of Saul. It was a trademark atrocity because he almost obeyed, and that's just Saul. He almost gets there, it seems. God says, go and do this. He gets up, calls his soldiers. Seems like he's going to do it. And then you get to verse 8, and it says, he captured Agag, the king of Amalekites, alive. In verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag, which is exactly what God said not to do. In verse 3, where he says, and do not spare him. And that word spare is to have compassion upon. Do not show King Agag any compassion. But Saul, as we have seen through this text, was pretty self-focused. And we find him after this battle and capturing the king setting up a monument unto himself, all the while God is coming to Samuel saying, man, I regret that I made Saul king. Saul's actions are as vile as when the entire world, all of man, all their thoughts and intentions were only evil continually, according to Genesis 6. Saul's actions are worthy of a worldwide flood upon him. And Saul is setting up a monument unto himself. Let 
that God's word still comes to him. As gracious as God's word is, number three was gracious accommodation. The gracious accommodation of God's word to come and speak our language so that we could fully understand uh, the, the hatred that God had for Saul's choice. And what a grace gift that was to Saul, because Samuel then comes to him, relays that message onto him, and Saul could have at that moment repented, confessed his sin, admitted it, dealt with it, and he could have enjoyed personal fellowship with God. Doesn't seem like he would have gotten his kingship back. But that's not our first priority when we deal with our sin in the first place. But he simply hears this rebuke from Samuel that came straight from God to him. And all he does is give a blame shifting argument, which is really what we saw in verses 12 through 21. Where Saul just says, hey, the people spared him. <laughs> the people kept all the sheep. So Samuel tells Saul exactly how it is in verse 22 and 23. And what was number five is a sharp accuracy. The sharp accuracy of God's word where he says to obey is better than sacrifice. And then verse 23 by the way, Saul, your partial obedience is simply rebellion. It says the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of Yahweh. He has also rejected you from being king. It's not just a, a half obedience, Saul. It's an absolute rejection of God's word. It's absolute idolatry for you not to do what God says is sin. And so God calls his bluff. It calls Saul's self-righteousness to the carpet and reveals exactly what his perception of Saul's actions were, which is sin and idolatry and absolute rebellion. Partial obedience equals disobedience in the eyes of God. So how then does Saul respond to this ever clear and accurate diagnosis of his sin? And what should we do when we recognize that we have sinned what should we do when we disobey God? What should we do when we commit that spiritual adultery and idolatry before his eyes and then his word comes to us and says, you're sin. What should we do at that moment? That brings us to number six and where we are in our study, which is the unconvincing apology. An unconvincing apology. I don't want to call it a confession of sin. I don't want to call it repentance here. Look at verse, verses 24 through 30. And really at first glance, it might look like Saul is genuinely confessing his sin. But I want to look at this closely. So, Samuel says, you've rejected God's word, he's rejected you. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of Yahweh and your words. Because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship Yahweh. 
But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship Yahweh, your God. Sounds like a decent confession, doesn't it? I've sinned. I've transgressed the command of Yahweh and your words. It seems here that Saul may be making a genuine confession. He finally admits that he is somewhat in the wrong. But as he continues to speak, it seems that this confession of sin is really just an unconvincing apology. Basically, an I'm sorry, can we just, can we just move along now? You see at the end of verse 24, that second part, he says, because I have feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, Saul here is not confessing his sin of fearing man. He's using it as an excuse. I did disobey the word of God, but it was because I feared the people. He gives a caveat here which is nothing more than an excuse. Saul was not admitting the sin of fearing man rather than God. He was given an excuse for his sin. And God here is giving us a commentary on Saul's heart. He expresses he sinned, but, but I only did it because I was afraid of the people. As if his actions were excusable because the people were intimidating to him. As if the circumstances were a valid excuse for his disobedience, which, which, by the way, is never the case. Saul is not truly broken. This is a worldly sorrow. Sorry he got caught. Sorry about the consequences. And you can see this attitude in his immediate request to go back to the way things were before the event. You see that in verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship Yahweh. This really is just a facade from Saul, a superficial repentance. Saul is almost saying the right things. Please pardon my sin so that I can go and worship Yahweh. He's using the right words to try to get what he wants and alleviate the consequences to some degree. Basically, he says, I see that I blew it, Samuel. Can, you, can we just get off my back now? Just come back with me. And we see why in verse 30, because I want you to honor me before the elders and my pe of my people. He just doesn't demonstrate that he understands the seriousness of his sin. I think that's why Samuel repeats himself regarding the seriousness of the situation before Yahweh. After he has told him he re he, God has rejected him, Saul seems to confess his sin, and then Samuel says, I'm not going to return with you 
For you have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 26. And I love how one commentator puts it. He says this, it all seems too easy. Hence, Samuel repeats the severe word of verse 23 that the Yahweh has rejected him from being king, as if to say, did you really hear me, Saul? It's hardly a matter of saying, okay, I admit I did wrong. Now let's get things back to normal. And how do we know that? Well, notice the wisdom of Samuel not to trust in Saul's initial confession, which really puts Saul's heart to the test. Because in verse 26, Samuel says, I'm not going to return with you. And you see the desperation of Saul. He reaches out and seizes the edge of his robe and it tore, which probably is a reference to the tassels that the Israelites wore that were a reminder for them to walk in obedience to the word of God. It is likely that he tore a tassel there. And Samuel picks up on this moment and gives a statement to the word picture that has taken place. So Samuel said to him in verse 28, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Notice what is really at the heart of Saul's confession. Let's just see this. Verse 25, he says, please pardon my sin and return with me. Verse 27, the desperation of him walking away. He would have been fine with the consequences if he had confessed his sin genuinely. He wouldn't need Samuel's approval. He reaches out and tears his robe. And then in verse 30, he says, I've sinned. Okay, I got it. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and has been before Israel. And go back with me that I may worship Yahweh your God. Again, there at the end of verse 30, you see I care about what the people think. But he adds just one more phrase. That I might go back and worship, but notice Yahweh, your God. Saul is so hesitant to call Yahweh his God. Why? It's the guilty conscience. It's the noisy soul. It's the understanding that he has no relationship with them. One commentator put it insightfully. He says, Saul's appeal is both understandable and revealing. At one level, Saul's request makes perfect sense. If, if Samuel's conduct gives high visibility to Saul's rejection, there could be dire consequences within Israel. Unrest, confusion, disorder. At the same time, Saul's words seem to expose his own priority, as if he had said, there is sin, but there's also politics. It would be suicidal for me to have an open rift with Samuel. Hence, it is vital to keep up appearances. Commentator continues, the problem is not that Saul's concern is unfounded, but that it is so dominant. What really matters is retaining the esteem of men. The support of men is more crucial than reconciliation 
with God. Slow's quote. Furthermore, if Saul's confession was sincere, I think he would have been the one that would have gone back and hacked Agag to pieces, demonstrating his repentance. And this is why Samuel decides to go back with Saul, not to help Saul save face, but to complete what God told Saul to do. And more on this later. So Saul's confession is ingenuine. If, if Saul's confession is not a true confession, well, what does true confession look like? What would, what would, it, have, what would it have looked like if, if, if Saul would have dealt with his sin rightly? What should we do if we disobey God? And it's, it's here that I really want to answer that question. And, oh man, I had high aspirations for what I could accomplish today, but we'll just see what happens here. We'll stop at the right time because I don't want to rush communion. I don't want to rush our last song. Uh, so we'll just see how far we get. Oh, unbelievable. We're going to camp out here for a minute. And I want to sort of develop a good theology of confession of sin with you to help inform you on, on what God expects of you when you sin against him. Because he knows what, that we are going to sin. We're going to sin, for better English. He knows that we're going to fail him even as his people. And so what do we do? What does true confession of sin look like? Well, let's go to a few passages. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. True confession, as you're turning there, I'll say this, true confession is focused on God and your own sin against him, not on what others might think or the consequences that might come from your sin or the acknowledgement of your sin. True confession is focused on, on God. And see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is writing to believers. He had already written one letter to them, which was, uh, if you remember some of it, uh, was a firm letter pointing out their sin. There were many wicked things going on in their church. I'm talking about in the building, but amongst the people. And Paul confronted them. Which is astounding because it led to their genuine repentance, which is what is expressed in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 13. It says this, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Well, that's an unkind thing to say. Paul, you made me hurt that you don't care? Go on further. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to God. 
so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to God, you see added by the New American Standard, the will of God, according to God, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you, what vindication of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. Everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. Besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. In other words, you had a true repentance. Our word that was to you came to you and God in his grace granted you repentance. Notice what led to their repentance there in verse, verse 9, for you were made sorrowful according to God. Verse 10 for the sorrow that is according to God produces repentance. Oh, sorry, verse 10, for you were made sorrowful according to God. Yep, I'm confused here. Verse 11, there we go. Also, sorrow according to God. Or as is translated, godly sorrow. The idea here is that true repentance, true confession of sin is God-centered, not man-centered. It is according to God. It is concerned with what God is concerned with, which is your sin. It is a brokenness over the reality that you have sinned against God. It's not a sorrow that is derived by what others might think of you. Not a sadness over the consequences that you might face. It is a sorrow that is produced by God, that is broken over the reality that you have done the very thing that God hates, that you have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And it is that God focus that moves a person to true repentance, true confession of sin, and a humble acceptance of whatever circumstances or consequences you might face because of the sin that you have committed. And this was the issue with Saul's confession, with Saul's repentance. Yes, if, if Saul would have truly confessed his sin before Yahweh, God still would not have changed his mind about Saul's kingship. But Saul could still have enjoyed fellowship with God on a personal level and perhaps finished out the remaining of, his, of the years of his kingship walking in obedience to God. But we know that that was not the case, as we'll, if you've read through 1 Samuel, we'll, we'll see it ourselves, Lord willing. If I don't die in 1 Samuel 15... One commentator put it this way. Incidentally, the firm word of verse 29 does not mean that Saul is beyond personal recovery. It means his kingship is rejected irrevocably. This was what one might say Saul's finest opportunity to show genuine repentance. He goes on. He could have said Yahweh's word is firm. I, I cannot reverse it. I cannot now get things back to normal, but I can confess that Yahweh's word is right. I can bow my back under its rod and I can submit to this hard word and live in obedience to Yahweh from this point on until he gives the kingdom to the man he has in mind. 
He could have said, I, I may be rejected as king, but I, I may yet be re reconciled as man. And I love how the commentator finishes here. He says, the following chapters show that Saul did not do this, but this was his opportunity. He was not a victim of fate. In other words, if there was ever a moment for Saul to demonstrate true repentance without some ulterior motive, this was it. The circumstances of his kingship were not going to change but he could have sought God's forgiveness and therefore true communion with God. But his heart is revealed. That's the problem with Saul. He, he doesn't just want to submit to Yahweh. He just doesn't want to admit his sin, not fully, not truly. He's sorry that he got caught and hopes that his partial obedience and his partial confession is enough to save face before the people because that is truly what he is concerned about. That is what really has his heart. What are the people going to think? See, when God's looking at your confession, he knows where your heart's at. You can say right words, but if there's still something going on there, God knows that. And if, and if you just confess your sin for the distinct purpose of getting things back to the way they are, well, then you're missing the entire point of confession. It's about God, not you. And furthermore, to kind of piggyback on that concept, it's about God. True confession is not only focused on God, it is motivated by fellowship with God. Another passage that we love to reference is 1 John chapter 1, where it's written to believers, and what an incredible gift it is, because it tells us that if we sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness in 1 John 1, 9. And really, constant confession of sin is one of the marks of a genuine believer, according to 1 John. But notice what the motive is for true confession there. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You can't say that you have fellowship with God and live your life for yourself with unrepentant sin. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In other words, if you hold out on God, you hold out on confessing your sin, if there's something going on inside of your heart, if there's something you have done, and you recognize that there is sin there, and you say, no, no, think I've really sinned. You're calling God a liar. Then you cannot have fellowship with God. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, what we see here that drives the believer is fellowship with God, and that's why we confess our sins. 
We can be transparent about the issues in our hearts and our lives because I don't care what other people think. I, I want to be close to God. God is absolutely holy. And there is a reason for shame and guilt when we sin against a holy God and his light exposes our sin for what it really is and brings a brokenness to us as his people, a sorrow over the reality that our fellowship with this holy God is broken. Not that we have lost our salvation. Not that we might lose our position or status in this world. But a desire to be close with God, to have koinonia, the, the Greek word for true fellowship with God and his people. That was the issue with Saul, remember? He's saying, hey, let's just get back to Gilgal and let's have a worship service. And God says, I, I don't care if you sacrifice to me if your heart's not really there. If you don't have a desire to truly submit to me, then then your sacrifices mean nothing. And that's what God is calling out here. Listen, and, and I want to say this because we've talked a lot about this recently. With the idea of the noisy soul and, and being able to sleep and things like that. The main motivation, and I think this is, critical to true confession here. So, so hear me on this. The main motivation that you should have when you are confessing your sin is not that you might sleep better, though that might be a relieving result. And it's not that you might have a quiet soul, though that is a wonderful place to be. But it is that you would have unhindered fellowship with the God who loves you and saved you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. It's, again, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God and the desire to walk closely with him. And God sees all of that. I've been there. Confessing with ulterior motives, whether it be just to God or, you know, perhaps... I don't know if this happens to you, but once in a while I sin on Sunday morning against my bride. That may happen every now and again. And it may cause a little rift between us. And I might be tempted and have certainly done. I got to go deal with that because there's no way I can go stand behind the pulpit with this whole thing going on. I got to go get that dealt with. And I'll like just pressure her. I said, I was wrong, I was angry, and I want her on my timetable to, to fully deal with it on her side if she had sin, and us to be right, and me to go over to my office and get everything ready and still be able to preach. Now, it is not a sinful desire to be able to stand up here as a non-hypocrite <laughs> and deal with my sin. But that's not why we confess our sin. When we deal with our sin, it is because we want to have fellowship with God. We want to walk with food. And when we look at Saul's confession, we can see just how impersonal the whole thing is. 
He never direct, directly goes to Yahweh to deal with his sin. And he never refers to, to Yahweh as his God. There seems to be no recognition of the seriousness of his sin besides what the people might think. There seems to be no brokenness over the loss of fellowship with Yahweh. And perhaps, and I believe, maybe he never really had that saving relationship with God. We're going to pick this up in a most untimely spot next time. And it's going to be a little bit because I have a few weeks before I preach here again. But it's fine because today we come to the Lord's table. And there's nothing sweeter than getting to come to these elements genuinely. Now, it's not a time to cast all, you know, heap all the burden upon yourself. A lot of times I wonder, oh, well, should I take it? Am I really right? And, and you may be having some struggles there. The blood of Jesus Christ is more powerful than any sin you may have ever thought of, said, or done. You cannot out-sin the glorious mercy and grace of God. Again, that doesn't stir in us this desire to say, well, then I can live however I want because I'm good. But rather, it moves us to a true brokenness to say, this God, who is absolutely holy and sees everything that I think, say, and do, whose word pierces me to the heart and shows me what I'm really like and exposes me for what I really am. This God sent his son to die in my place. It says that your blood washes away all our sin. So if there is an issue in your heart as a Christian here today, run to the throne of grace. Obviously, spiritually speaking, bow humbly before the God of forgiveness. confess your soul to him. Agree with him. Seek to walk out of it. If you're not in Christ, I know most of you pretty well. My assumption is you know the Lord but God sees your heart and 
this is a moment for you. Where you're kind of standing face to face with absolute reality. Not what somebody else might think of you. Not what might happen tomorrow. But right here, right now, before a holy God, have I dealt with my sin genuinely, truly? Have I repented of my sin and placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? You cannot earn God's favor. You cannot read your Bible enough. Baptism isn't going to save you. Uh, Coming to church will not save you. Jesus alone saves, and he does that based upon repentance and faith. Repentance for sure that God grants you, and faith that God gives you, but true repentance, true faith nonetheless, where you say, God, I have sinned, I have blown it. It's not about me anymore. It's about you, and I surrender my life to you today. This is that moment for you. So don't delay. Don't wait. Repent. Trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're wondering, as I said before, if there's something you've done that is beyond forgiveness, well, you don't understand then how gracious forgiving our holy God rivers. Father, thank you for this time in your perfect providence where we are at in our study. Thank you for this time now as we come to your table. May it be a true time of worship in Jesus' name.